This is Mesa Verde Voices, a podcast about the ancient history of the Four Corners and why it matters today. We are your two hosts. I'm Callie Carswell. And I'm Kayla Eiler. And here's what's in store this season. We've got stories about people, places, public lands, science, culture, and ethics, agriculture, and tourism. And, well, we should just listen, yeah? Yeah, let's do it. Today, we're going to learn about how ancient corn cobs in southwestern alcoves are helping to answer pressing modern questions about the future of agriculture and why continuing to grow unique varieties here in the southwest is so important. All right, here we go. It's a hopper 50 pounds per batch. You put it in the hopper. Conveyor takes it through the first, um, through the middle. It's a Tuesday morning in April, and Ray Leone is grinding a batch of dried corn kernels into meal. My name is um, Ray Leone. I'm the mill foreman for Santa Ana Agriculture Department, and we do blue corn products. Ray is showing Callie around Santa Ana Pueblo's grain mill, one of only a couple of mills in New Mexico today that specialize in corn. Uh, we have a coffee roaster. That's where we um, roast all our corn. Ray is from Santa Ana, which sits on the banks of the Rio Grande in New Mexico. It's between Santa Fe and Albuquerque. And Ray has been working with corn professionally for more than 30 years. Well, I started in 84. I started basically on the farm growing the blue corn. Around 10 years later, he moved to the mill. At that time, I just knew how to grow the corn, but didn't have no idea of the different um roasting temperatures, the different textures of the blue corn and white. So I had some good teachers that taught me a lot, basically my mom and my grandmas. When Ray was learning how to roast and process corn for different uses, he'd bring the meal to his mom and grandmas for testing, and they'd tell him how to modify it. Now he's basically the go-to guy in New Mexico if you grow corn and don't want to process it in the traditional way, by hand with a stone grinder. And he's developed a specialized set of knowledge, like how to make parched corn. Have you ever had the bottom of the popcorn, you know, how the ones that don't pop and they barely pop? That's what parched corn is, but this one is slightly salted with blue corn. It's crunchy. This is my husband, Colin, trying it. You're going to love this. It's really crunchy. <laughs> and a bit addictive. When my dad and my grandfather, some, we used to grow corn, we're out, out in the field hoeing, and that was a snack, you know. And if you just want to buy kernels and have them roasted and ground to particular specifications, raise your guy for that too. For instance, Ray says members of Zia Pueblo tend to prefer their kernels darkly roasted, almost burnt. How you want it roasted, how you want it ground, we can basically match it up if you bring us a sample. Ray claims the skills he brings to this job aren't particularly technical, but Joseph Bronk... I'm the agriculture director here at the Pueblo of Santa Ana. Joseph begs to differ. I think it actually is pretty technical. He's just not giving himself credit. It's a custom mill, so if you come in, it's one of the very few places you can come in and request exactly how you want your corn processed. It serves the community. We do all the 22 tribes in the state of New Mexico. There's a lot of people who can't or won't process their corn anymore because it's very cumbersome if you do it traditionally. So a lot of people rely on the mill to do that for them and to keep their traditions alive. And that was the whole idea starting the mill years ago. At the time, the whole idea was to get the people back into farming because 
they were saying that we were losing, nobody was planting anymore. So for Santa Ana Pueblo, the mill was one piece of a puzzle to keep corn agriculture alive. And this kind of enterprise, it actually may be important in a surprising way to people all over the world. How's that? Setting up incentives for people to to maintain local varieties on in the field is really probably the best way to maintain this variation in a form that's usable in the future. That's Kelly Swartz. I'm Kelly Swartz. I'm a plant geneticist and a southwestern archaeologist. And when she says variation, she's talking about genetic variation. Heritage varieties of corn, like the blue, yellow, and white varieties developed by ancient farmers in the Southwest and still grown here today, these varieties may hold the genetic keys to adapting corn to the changing climate. And not just Southwestern corn. The corn in Iowa, too. This is one of the conclusions of some really fascinating research that Kelly published last year. And part of what's so interesting about it is that the insights on this pressing modern question came from a surprising place, 2,000-year-old corn cobs, the kind that persist in sheltered alcoves at southwestern archaeological sites. These were found, though, uh, in the Grand Gulch area of southeast Utah. And by the way, we're going to refer to these cobs and corn in general as both corn and maize. So because they've been sheltered from the rain, they were quite well preserved. And they're basically just a dry cob. So it's something that you might find in your compost heap after you had corn on the cob. Pretty much just a dry, a dry piece of corn cob. By doing genetic analysis on these very old, very well-preserved corn cobs, Kelly set out to shed light on a question Southwestern archaeologists have wanted to answer for a long time. Maize entered the Southwest about 4,000 years ago, but then it didn't fully adapt uh, to the Colorado Plateau until 2,000 years ago. And what I mean by that is that there wasn't full maize agriculture. They weren't processing it. They weren't storing it. They just had it. The question is why. Why did it take 2,000 years for corn farming to really take off in the Colorado Plateau? In case you don't know, the Colorado Plateau is a cooler, higher elevation region in the southwest, and the Four Corners is at its center. Yeah, so what we really wanted to understand is, was the reason that people were not fully um, adopting maize agriculture on the plateau due to cultural choices, or was it due to uh, some question of insufficient adaptation? In other words, were they choosing not to farm corn, or were they not doing it because it wasn't really possible yet? And the reason it might not have been possible yet is that maize was a tropical plant. People brought it to the southwest from tropical parts of Mexico, places where it doesn't get very cold. But the Colorado Plateau is a temperate climate. It gets cold and we have winters. So when corn first arrived here, it probably didn't grow that well. Yeah. <laughs> It would flower in like October. And then it would get knocked out by frost before the ears could mature and produce seed. So the cobs Kelly analyzed were from the time period when corn farming did start to take off on the Colorado Plateau, one of the first temperate environments where that happens. So the question is, did it happen then because ancient farmers had successfully adapted it to these novel growing conditions? Whether it was adapted or not. One of the reasons scientists want to understand this is that it's a really important moment in, well, in the agricultural history of the world. Mazes, it's one of the top three staple grains in the world globally. It produces a huge number of calories for a huge amount of the global population. And much of this maize is grown in temperate climates today. And these farmers in the Southwest 2,000 years ago, they're the ones who made this big leap possible. I think we owe 
the, this enormous productivity of temperate agriculture today to the farmers of the southwest U.S. Who, who really put in the effort to adapt this crop. So what Kelly did with these 2,000-year-old cobs was to use advanced genetic sequencing tools to peel back the curtain and reveal their genome. And that allowed her to see if their DNA had changed in important ways, for an earlier flowering time, for example. And it had. We do know now we have a, a solid time point where we can say this maze at this time, at uh, this site, which is Turkey Fen 1900 years ago, um, was already adapted to that region. And then she also unpacked how that happened. So we're going to do some evolution 101 here. Okay, there are two ways adaptation can happen. Do you remember what they are? Um, let's see. Mutation? Yep, that's right. Random mutations can occur in your genes, and that could have happened to the flowering gene. And selection? Yeah, and this is usually what humans are using to breed plants for certain traits. And it means that there are already these genetic variants out there for earlier flowering times. And it's just a matter of shuffling it around to get the right variants and the right, right individuals. And it looks like this is what happened in the Southwest. Farmers were selecting for variation that had existed in the maize genome for a long time. And this is a really hopeful finding, Kelly says, when you're thinking about corn's ability to adapt to future changes in the climate. This is really hopeful, I think, for, uh, for the future of maize because it means that there's a lot of standing variation, uh, as, as we call it in genetics. In other words, this tropical plant had an innate capacity to thrive in temperate environments, sort of just hidden away in its genome. There's a lot of variation uh, that can be used for a lot of things, so not just for flowering, but variation for adapting to drought. It just needed to be harnessed with a lot of selection over a period of time by these farmers. Looking forward for the future, this gives a lot of hope for our ability to adapt maize to whatever the climate can throw at us. And that brings us back to the local varieties adapted to the Southwest and still being grown today. The varieties that Ray Leone, Joseph Bronk, and the Santa Ana Pueblo want to keep around. These are the populations that still hold a lot of unique variations that could be useful in the future. And these populations really aren't the, the, the germplasm that the Monsanto or Pioneer is working with. So if we're going to adapt to, to change, it's not probably going to come from this, you know, sort of elite breeding germplasm. In other words, the highly specialized varieties you'll see growing in huge monocultures in Iowa but it will probably be coming from these, these locally adapted varieties. So these land races from the Southwest as well as from you know, across the world, really. And the best way to maintain the genetic diversity these varieties hold is to keep planting them, to do what we can to incentivize farmers to grow heirloom corn. This is um, kernels from Sunny State, and it's a mixed variety. It's got everything from big kernels to medium-sized kernels to... Um, small kernel. Our thing is trying to keep the blue as we roast to not lose it, not to get it too dark or not too light, and you still give it that flavor. I took some cornmeal home and wanted to cook something, so I asked Ray what he liked to eat. Everything's good. I mean, I was brought up eating the roasted blue corn, the atoli. My mom used to make um, crepes and with the blue corn for dessert. Blue corn crepes, that was new to me and intriguing because I do really like crepes. So, well, my husband cooks breakfast, so I gave him the recipe. Okay, we're making the crepes. We're combining the dry and wet ingredients separately first. 
What do you think the blue cornmeal flour smells like? It's like nutty and earthy. Kind of tastes like peanut butter, actually. We melted butter, whisked the dry and wet ingredients together, fired up our cast iron pans, poured the batter in. Looks like it's making a nice crepe. I think it will be delicious. And finally, we sat down to breakfast. Okay, we made our crepes. We've got some butter, maple syrup, and then we defrosted some raspberries and blueberries. Colin's eating his like a taco. So if you want to support the growing of heirloom corn by eating it, well, here's another reason. Mm. Very good. Definitely has a corn taste, like reminiscent of like cornbread. Tastes substantial. Thanks to Ray Leone, Joseph Bronk, and Emery Garcia of Santa Ana Agricultural Enterprises. Thanks to Kelly Swartz, who did the research featured in this episode while studying at Cornell University. Kelly is now at the Max Planck Institute for Developmental Biology in Germany. And thanks to my husband, Colin Dick. And thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And do us a favor and leave us a review. For more information, visit mesaverdevoices.org. Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It's produced in partnership with Mesa Verde National Park and the Mesa Verde Museum Association, with additional support from the Ballantine Family Fund, Aramark, and Concept 360.